Welcome to Prison Pipeline, produced at the studios of KBOO Portland. I'm Karen James. My guest is Chris Dowd, a Portland therapist. We'll discuss the experiences of people with mental health challenges who are arrested and incarcerated. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me. Chris, talk a little bit about your background as a therapist. I started working in mental health with a team called the Early Assessment and Support Alliance, which does um, direct service and is an interdisciplinary team for folks experiencing a first psychotic episode or who are experiencing what's called attenuated risk syndrome, which is really just some perceptual and behavioral changes that look like, you know, this could become psychosis, so let's intervene now. Wonderful team, free to the community, and there's one in every county in Oregon. Um, Now I work in group practice and I serve trans and non-binary people. And you do have experiences with uh, people who suffer with mental health challenges who have been incarcerated. So what are some of the reasons or behaviors that people are experiencing that lead them to arrest and incarceration? Sure. People with mental illness often enter the justice system for really low-level offenses like jaywalking, disorderly conduct, or trespassing. Um, And then the problem of people with mental illness being overrepresented in the criminal justice system is widely referred to as the criminalization of mental illness. And I think a big part of why this has happened is we've wrongfully set up law enforcement as our frontline crisis response in the majority of places across the state. So I've seen people arrested for all kinds of reasons, often, like I said, very low level offenses, often when they're in not a state of mind where they have a lot of control over what they're doing. And I've seen things like felony charges for people simply trying to leave an inpatient who resisted a security guard. So reasons can really vary, but I think at the heart of the issue is just that people are being arrested for survival crimes, poverty crimes, victimless crimes, those sorts of things. So you did say that people are often arrested for low-level nonviolent crimes. Are there the more serious crimes, and how often are you seeing the more serious crimes that uh, people with mental health challenges are being arrested for? You know, I've not really seen that firsthand. Um, I know that there are instances and specific conditions that can cause people to act kind of erratically. And there are cases where there's been a domestic disturbance or something and police arrive and the family's looking to get them help and has called, you know, the police for help. And they're instead arrested and not diverted to hospital or for crisis stabilization. So when a person with mental health challenges is arrested, describe some experiences that you have either um, heard about or some of your clients have experienced. Yeah, so some arrests are very traumatic for people, particularly due to the actions taken by the arresting officer. So experiences during arrest can really vary person to person and, of course, officer to officer. Um, And I think how the officer chooses to conduct themselves and the amount of humanity with which they see the people that they're interacting with plays a really big role. Um, And, of course, so do personal cognitive biases. I think biases play a very big role, and that's why we see populations, particularly those that have been historically oppressed in the U.S., Black and Indigenous folks, people with mental illness, extremely overrepresented at every level of criminal justice in the United States and in Oregon. So arrest for people with mental illness can be particularly frightening because much like for 
the Black and Indigenous community, there's a much higher likelihood that you'll be harmed or killed if you're interacting with officers and you have a mental illness. People who are you know, exceptionally afraid or might be experiencing psychotic illness, who might be delusional, that sort of thing, are more likely to have the very human and very involuntary fear response of attempting to flee or resist, um, which police in turn often respond to with violence or can. So unfortunately, you know, I've seen people have very bad experiences with some police officers during arrest for uh, times that they've kind of lost consensual reality and were acting erratically or that sort of thing. And I've also conversely seen some good interactions with police, particularly on the behavioral health unit in Washington County. Their response, at least in my experience, has been good. So I think it can really vary. You mentioned a good experience with a Washington County deputy. Can you describe that experience? So I you know, have been a therapist for some years now. And then prior to that, I was in social services, doing direct service for folks who are homeless, um, for young people. And um, times I've called the crisis line, which if they think there is a you know threat to safety or that sort of thing, they'll involve what's called the behavioral health unit, which is a small group of police that are very trained in crisis response. And I've had them come out and act very calm and be very friendly and kind and compassionate and just sit and talk to people and really assess what's going on and figure out what they need. And I think that's the sort of response we need from you know, from police, more so than some of the responses that we see, which, you know, can include people being um, treated as though they are a danger to others, just because their behavior might seem a little disorganized, um, and people being arrested in ways that are violent or traumatic for them, or arrested when arrest doesn't even need to occur. Describe some of the behaviors of a person with mental health challenges that may appear to be dangerous or so erratic that maybe police or even first responders do not know how to react. Mental health can play a big role in arrest in that way. So for people with like severe and persistent mental illness, uh, during an episode, they might have disorganized behavior they might be found doing strange things outside, just kind of wandering around, or that disorganization might translate into their speech and how much difficulty they have with even communicating. They might experience a loss of consensual reality. And these behaviors can lead to all kinds of things, not just arrest, but also people becoming homeless. And I think what we see is police end up getting called on people, whether for this kind of disorganized behavior or just for homelessness even if no real harm is being done, and that the response is to arrest people and kind of remove them from sight. So uh, in Oregon, for example, you only need to step out into the street during a red light to receive a disorderly conduct charge in many cities. And it's, you know, it doesn't take much to, to be arrested and incarcerated. I think petty violations and misdemeanors are particularly common charges for folks who are homeless and live outdoors. And we know people with mental illness are overrepresented in the houseless community too. So when you're forced to live outdoors, it becomes, you know, every act you engage in from sleeping to sitting on the sidewalk is criminalized. And some police departments aren't so shy about saying that, you know, their goal is to quote unquote, clean up the city. And I think they see arrest as one way to do that, unfortunately. 
Now, you talk about these behaviors that are out of the control of people suffering with mental health challenges, and yet they are arrested and incarcerated because of these behaviors that are out of their control. What are your thoughts about that? And what are the alternatives to jail? Yeah, I would say in the vast majority of cases, these behaviors should not lead to arrest. And there's a lot of potential alternatives for people experiencing these kinds of mental health concerns. So our jails and prisons really aren't designed to stabilize people experiencing mental health crisis. And we're doing people in the community a huge disservice by using jails and prisons basically as asylums for people with mental illness. So the alternatives, I think there's a lot of different ways to approach that. Some of what needs to happen first is just the decriminalization of certain small level offenses. I think measure 10, uh, which decriminalized a possession of small amounts of substances is a good start. And then as allocating money to substance treatment centers. Um, So from a public health lens, we really want to be supporting people in society prior to contact with law enforcement. So we're ensuring that their arrest isn't the only way that they're able to access services. And I think this means we have to commit as a society to accessible housing and healthcare and treatment teams. Yeah, mental health alternatives, crisis response units, and robust social service programs are major alternatives. I think the Early Assessment and Support Alliance, where I started my mental health journey, is a really great example of a service that can help divert people from hospital, state hospital, jails, et cetera which we did successfully do. And basically EASA, we call it ESA, is a program for transition age youth uh, around 12 to 30, it can vary, who are experiencing a first psychotic episode or who appear to be beginning to develop psychosis of some kind. And we do a lot of screening and assessment, of course it's in the name, but also some medical stabilization. So it was an interdisciplinary team and folks would come to us and be able to access a nurse, a prescriber, mental health therapist, housing support, employment support. The team can vary county to county, but our team is very large. And it's a free program, regardless of insurance, anyone can access this program and services are really tailored to the individual. And I think it's community-based services like that, that are going out, meeting people where they're at, that are doing the on the ground work, allowing people to stay with families, to live in the community, that are focused on working with the whole family, not just the individual. Uh, these kinds of programs are going to have a huge impact on, you know, how full our jails and prisons are with people who are experiencing mental health challenges. So I think the state investing in other programs like ESA would be a great alternative, a great choice to make. Chris, what age group again did ESA provide services to? So ESA, which is the Early Assessment and Support Alliance, is a program that serves transition age youth, usually 14 to 25, but there is some wiggle room there for folks who are a little younger and a little older. And it exists in every county in Oregon. Every team looks a little different, but they all serve the same purpose, which is to help folks experiencing either a first psychotic episode or who appear to be developing a psychotic episode. And they do a lot of assessment and stabilization and a lot of work with families as well. And this is what I believe cahoots down in Eugene, Oregon, the Portland Street Response 
more cahoots that goes out and does outreach in the community just to check on people, just to make sure they're okay and they get to know the community members and know what their struggles are. And, and it sounds like ISA is along that same line of support, but only for youth and, and teens up to 25 years old. We need this in every community for not only that age group, but adults also. Uh, do you see this as, as a, a huge need as much as I do in our communities? Yeah, absolutely. I think CAHOOTS does a lot of street outreach, so they're just going out talking to people directly. ESA's outreach is more in the form of community education, so going to schools, uh, hospitals, other treatment teams, and just kind of spreading the word that we exist. And then we're community-based in that, or we were, I was when I worked with them, in that they go out to folks um, once they're in the program or they're being screened for the program and they offer services, you know, in schools. We could go see people in the hospital. We could give people therapy in their homes. It's just very accessible. I'm also really looking forward to seeing what happens with Senate Bill 680, which is going to allocate funding for peer respite centers, because I think in terms of diverting people, you know, from jails or stopping people from being unnecessarily hospitalized, which can be very traumatic, that having a voluntary place people can go to be served by other folks with lived experience is going to be very profound. Chris, talk more about uh, alternatives. I know there aren't enough community supports for people, and that's why people with mental health challenges are ending up in jail instead of in community services and programs. And even the Oregon State Hospital is full. People are languishing in our jails. They are dying in our jails waiting for treatment at our Oregon State Hospital right now. So what are the alternatives? Mental health care is going to be a big alternative in these social service programs that we've been talking about peer respite centers, uh, mobile crisis response, outreach teams, all of these things will make a big difference. Uh, and especially community-based mental health teams like ESA. So when I was at ESA, a couple of examples of what we did for people. I've seen people spend as long as six months in jail waiting uh, to be transferred to state hospital on aid and assist, which is illegal, you know, as you know, but happens all the time. And sadly, in many places for many people with behavioral health or mental health issues, they end up on a medical observation unit, something like that in the jail, which is just solitary confinement, which is complete sensory and social deprivation. And I've seen people who would normally have stabilized very quickly following a psychotic episode that led to an arrest end up needing months or in some cases greater to a year after discharging from state hospital to return to their baseline. So this isn't good for individuals, it isn't good for their families, it isn't good for society at large because the vast majority of people incarcerated are going to return to the community. And we want them returning stable and healthy and rehabilitated. We don't want people returning decompensated, psychotic and suicidal, which is what the research is really clear that practices like solitary confinement can cause in people. And what those of us who work in the field know happens when folks with mental illness are trapped in jail or uh, other institutions that don't really provide them the care they need to stabilize or heal. 
And that is the uh, big issue right now with aid and assist. And aid and assist is when uh, someone is unable to aid and assist in their own defense when they uh, are arrested and in jail. Once the court deems them unable to aid and assist, they have to be transported to a hospital within seven days. But they are transported to the state hospital, but only to legal competency. They're not stabilized to full recovery and then transported back to the jail uh, so they could go to court and continue their legal process. And right now, that is what's going on. The uh, jails are so backed up and there is no room at the state hospital. And a judge, a federal judge, just ruled that the Oregon State Hospital must release patients. And counties are uh, in a panic that there are no community supports for these people being released from the state hospital. What are your thoughts? Yeah, what you said about state hospital is absolutely true. And sometimes it takes a lot of advocating from families to even get people out of state hospital because there'll be some plan contingent on them needing like an outpatient team or some kind of outside support in order to continue on in the community, which is a huge issue. Um, As for the second part of what you said, on the one hand, there is a shortage of mental health workers and a lot of outpatient teams right now don't have capacity to serve people the way that they need to. So we absolutely need to, you know, ramp up funding for these programs to be out there for legislative sessions and advocating in any way we can to make sure that Oregon's mental health system stays healthy and is able to serve people. All in all, I'm very glad about the ruling and I think people should absolutely not be, you know, languishing in state hospital unnecessarily and beyond what's legally and ethically okay. And I've seen firsthand people do very well in the community. It just takes the right supports, you know, supports tailored to the individual, which is not an impossible thing, no matter what's going on for a person. There's always something that can be done to help. You mentioned the workforce and the shortage in the mental health profession, Chris. And when we talk about the shortage, we're trying to incentivize people, people of color, LGBTQ, people of different cultures to join this this uh, profession. There is such a shortage in the workforce right now. How do you see this fulfilling that need? Yeah, a lot needs to be done. I know there's some efforts that are being um, undertaken to make licensure for certain uh, mental health professions more accessible. That happened within the last year or two. There's been a couple of um, kind of emergent legislation that came forward with some extra funding. There's been that, um, that bill that allowed for peer respite funding. So a lot is being done in terms of trying to recruit and serve more targeted populations, I think a lot more could be done. I am a non-binary person and I work with other trans and non-binary people. And I feel very lucky to be in a practice that's able to specialize care in that way. And there are a handful of other practices like this in Portland that really specialize their care for different populations. Um, There's also things that are emerging over the last three or four years, like crisis lines specific to BIPOC folks, um, crisis lines specific to trans folks. 
So there are things out there and there's a long way we have to go because we know that targeted communities are just that, they're targeted for incarceration, harassment, discrimination, and there is so much we need to do as a society to just step up and make sure people are protected and that there's a level of equity uh, in healthcare to serve these populations. And when you talk about these populations and you said harassment and discrimination, and then when you add mental health issues, uh, what are some of the special needs of some of these communities? Uh, the needs can really vary. Um, for you know, queer and trans community, for example, it can really help to have someone understanding of the medical system of things like social or medical transition. It can help to have someone with lived experience because there's just nothing quite like getting to connect with someone with that shared identity, shared experience. It can be a really powerful moving thing. I think that's why peer support specialists are so key in mental health care is they come with a lived experience. And while they don't necessarily just focus on one particular identity, I think lived experiences of all kind make a huge difference in people's healing. Um, for trans community in terms of incarceration, there's really a lot of considerations to be made. For a while, a lot of trans folks uh, in Oregon were being put into segregated housing, solitary confinement, just by virtue of being trans. It was in May 2019, the Oregon State Court did respond to, I think it was a habeas corpus, and they said that basically trans folks need to be housed either in a single cell or with other trans or gender non-conforming people, which is a huge step. Um, but we still know there's a long way to go there um, and a lot of development that needs to happen. But some populations are much more at risk of being interacted with in a violent way by police, that sort of thing, as I mentioned earlier. And I think that's a huge consideration when we're looking at the intersection of mental illness and race, mental illness and sexual or uh, gender identity. It just kind of compounds their odds of facing a violent arrest, a scary arrest, that sort of thing. As you mentioned, Chris, these you know people with mental health challenges, at the rates they are being incarcerated, they are more than often victims themselves. Talk about that. Yeah, so we know folks with mental illness are far more likely to be the victims of crime, of violent crime, than the perpetrators of violent crime. Other populations are vulnerable in that same way. Uh, I think, you know, Black and Indigenous folks in particular all over the country and in Oregon as well, I believe they're up to four times more likely to be arrested than and imprisoned than their white counterparts. And that is a huge disparity, especially when you consider Oregon's makeup in terms of race or demographics. Black and Indigenous folks are far overrepresented in, in the prison population. This is not because people with these kinds of uh, backgrounds or identities or anything mental illness, being Black, et cetera. It's not because they're more prone to violence. This is just an issue of bias and an issue of white supremacy in the criminal justice system, among other issues. According to Willamette Week, it's something like about 1% of Black people in Oregon are in the state prison system. 
which is chilling. Chris, talk about the issues that people with mental health challenges face as they release from jail. Now, a jail, you can spend up to a year in jail. Talk about how traumatic this is for people uh, releasing from our county jails. The loss relief furthers the traumatic experience. So from arrest to, you know, incarceration to post-incarceration, all of these steps along the way can really determine a person's hopefulness, their outcome, their stability. What I've seen after people leave prisons and jails is that there are a lot of challenges around getting them into housing, which is a huge issue. You have to have a safe place to live and sleep in order to avoid a lot of these sorts of charges to begin with, like we mentioned at the beginning, there's a lot of challenges as well to things like employment, where people struggle to find jobs. They might need a lot of assistance, which I've provided folks in the past just around explaining the charge. And then they have to be concerned about the fear of how much to share. You know, if whether or not you get a home or a job depends on whether or not you open yourself up to sharing that you have a mental illness with a landlord you've never met or a new employer, it's a scary thing. And it can mean um, opening yourself up to discrimination and them saying no either way. I've also seen that this creates what's called a revolving door into the criminal justice system where people are, you know, exiting without services, without a plan. Um, sometimes without any property. For folks who do spend a long time in there, like you said, it could be up to a year. If they didn't have family or anyone that they were living with to pay their housing, that sort of thing, which many people do not, they could, while incarcerated, have lost everything that they own, all of their personal possessions. And that in itself is a traumatic, terrible experience that can feel very violating. And then there's also other losses that can occur charge by charge. For instance, if someone's caught with a little bit of cannabis or something, that can mean a loss of federal student aid for them, which means inability to go to college, which we know is a huge door out of poverty. So the the loss that people experience both during and after incarceration is profound. It's really profound. Now, Chris, you are doing work around the use of solitary confinement. Can you talk about your work? So I've been involved in a work group that is um, drafting some legislation to bring to the legislative session next year to severely limit and or reform the practice of what's called segregated housing or solitary confinement. Basically, this group's got Disability Rights Oregon attending, Department of Corrections, folks from the Oregon Justice Resource Center, Oregon Youth Authority, a lot of different stakeholders coming together to really try to make meaningful change in Oregon. So I'm very hopeful something will be done in this area because there's just so much crossover with mental illness, solitary confinement, incarceration, et cetera. So it's a racial justice issue. It's a disability rights issue. It's a queer and trans issue. And it's a public health issue. And I just wanted to put that on people's radar so they know um, it's something that they can support next year when the legislative session rolls around. 
Thank you, Chris, so much. Thank you for all your work and for all your sharing today. This is such an important topic for people to understand why we should not be incarcerating people with mental health challenges, especially for these low-level, nonviolent crimes. We have to find a, another way. So thank you so much. My guest has been Chris Dowd. Thank you, Chris. Absolutely. Thank you, Karen.